A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, we have a special episode for you. I've pulled together some of my favorite leadership advice that we've heard through some of our past episodes. You'll hear from author and pilot Captain William Thompson, renowned listening expert David Cook, and Rod Robertson, who's not only a serial entrepreneur, but also a best-selling author. So here comes some of the best advice to grow as a leader and help your team's productivity. You know, you have, you've, you've got a really great career path. I mean, you know, really your, your whole path all the way through. And instead of me sharing the story, I'd, you know, share, share the story with us of how you've gotten to where you are today. All right. Well, I grew up in South Carolina uh, back in the days of segregation and was one of the first African-American kids to go to what had been an all white high school. And uh, that was an interesting experience, particularly uh, the first day being escorted by federal marshals and highway patrol to school. Uh, but being at Orangeburg High, notwithstanding the uh, turbulence, as we'll say, also opened up doors for me opportunity-wise that I probably would not have had had I gone to the other high school, which was uh, the black high school in town. I ended up going to the Air Force Academy, was the first African-American from South Carolina to go to that prestigious institution. And as a result of that, I became an Air Force pilot um, and went on to become a Delta pilot, as you had mentioned. Now, uh, I also went to law school at night using my GI benefits uh, while I was in the uh, Air Force. And so when I got out of the Air Force and got hired by Delta, uh, I ended up going to Boston to finish my last year of law school. And so I ended up having, in a sense, a dual career, both flying, starting out as an attorney and then becoming uh, an entrepreneur and also working for uh, the governor of the state as commissioner of aviation at that time and uh, have gone on to to do a number of different things uh, around business as well as community things. And uh, now these days, I've just written a book called The Flight to Excellence, and I'm on the speaking circuit. But let's, you know, let's spend a little bit of time because let's face it, no business exists without its customers, whoever they are, whether they're the people who are flying on your airplanes or the people you consult with, in my case, or, you know, the the person that walks in your store. Um, You know, tell me a little bit about The Flight to Excellence and, you know, how did that come about? What's your thinking in it? And um, I'd love to explore maybe a couple of the teachings within the book. Absolutely. Well, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Delta, and Delta is number one for me. Flying has always been my number one passion. But in my business ventures, I ran uh, a company that had uh, several divisions. Started out as one, just me. When I, when I sold it uh, some years later, I had 150 employees in five states. And so it was a significant uh, part of my daily life as well. And I might mention that I flew for Delta at the same time, but I used a lot of those principles from Delta in my own company. And, and, and the book evolves from my totality of experiences, both growing up, my parent, parental influences, my time at Delta and my time running my own business. And I've come to the conclusion that there are four uh, 
In fact, we call it the P4 system. Four principles that we can use uh, in any organization or in our day-to-day life with respect to focusing on excellence. And the four P's are, number one, principles. You've got to have the right principles or nothing else matters, and those principles need to be aligned. The second P is people. You want to surround yourself with good people and the right people. And if you're the boss, you want to be good to the people you lead. The third P is a plan. I call it a flight plan for obvious reasons. You got to know where you're going to land before you ever take off. And you got to have a chart, a route to get there. And the fourth P is performance. You got to have a bias for action because you've got to be able to perform. And I think you can use those four P's in any aspect of business or life. In fact, the subtitle of the book, The Flight to Excellence, is Soaring to New Heights in Business and Life. You can use those four P's as a guide uh, on your journey through that process. Outstanding. And so, you know, I, what I love about it is uh, it so aligns with, with, with our thinking too, right? I mean, especially the principles and people. If you don't have the right people, you're, you're going to have a problem. I mean, Jim Collins talked a lot about the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, but also you got to have the right people in the right seats. And I think that's where you get to the perform piece to some degree, but the principles are really, really the key. Well, we use the yes. term core ideology, but it's the same thing. It's, you know, the core values and purpose of the organization. What are you about? Why do you do what you do and who are the right people? And, and I think we sometimes miss that with core values and core values alignment, we always talk about having the right employees, but it also works with customers to some degree. Because when you when you have customers that are aligned to your core values, or in your case, to your principles, I think it, it builds a better customer relationship as well. No question, no question. And and I made the statement that they have to be aligned. And, and what do I mean by aligned? And I use this as an example. Principles is a word that's a homonym, and a homonym is a word that spells the same, sounds the same, but can have different reasons, different definitions. Excuse me. And so, for example. Principles can be your uh, personal conduct, your ethical standard, right? Your principles. Principles are also uh, common laws or fundamental truths, like gravity. Gravity is a, is a principle of a fundamental truth. Doesn't matter what your principles are. If you drop a pencil, it's going to fall to the ground, right? And so you've got these two definitions of principles. But if you can get those aligned, then you have the foundation for a culture of excellence, And I use money as a good example, although it applies across the board in every aspect of life. And so, for example, there's certain principles of money. There's the the power of compounded interest. There's the rule of 72, which is how fast your money will double at a given interest rate. And then there's the fact that the stock market has uh, generally increased on average between 10 and 11% since 1926, notwithstanding the Great Depression, the Great Recession, the ups and downs on average. That's the fact. Now, if your personal principles are uh, spending and consuming, you're not going to be in alignment with the fund- pr- fundamental principles of money. On the other hand, if your principles are relative frugality, saving and investing, then you're going to be in an alignment and you're going to, over time, naturally become a millionaire. 
And you can use that same concept in relationships. You can use it in health and wellness. There's certain fundamental principles in health and wellness. And look at your personal principles. If you get those aligned, then you're going to be in pretty good shape. You're going to have some money and you're going to get along with most people. You know? Sure. <laughs> and, and, and so that's what I mean by alignment. Look at your personal principles. Look at the fundamental principles around that particular aspect of life and get them aligned. And so that is a synopsis of what I mean by having the right principles and having them aligned. So if a, if, if a, a business is, you know, up and running and struggling with some of this and trying to figure it out, sometimes people don't know who they are, right? And even organizations right. don't know who they are. What's, what's maybe like one of the first or first few steps of discovery? Because there are a lot of, you know, as you said, there are a lot of principles and, and maybe money is just not a principle that's, that's important to this organization, but maybe relationships are, or maybe it's something else or whatever. How does one yeah. go down that path of discovery, figuring out what principles are important and which ones we need to drive some alignment around? Yeah. I, I don't think this is rocket science. I mean, if, if, if you look around, we all, for the most part, know what's right and wrong. Okay. The, the issue in most cases is not uh, information. It is focus and execution. All right. Yes. People want to lose weight. Everybody wants to lose weight. There are all kinds of programs. Noom is the latest one that I see on TV these days. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weight, wife, whatever. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But the reality is we all know fundamentally that if you want to lose weight, uh, basically you just got to eat better and, and, and exercise a little bit, right? It's not yep. rocket science. Yep. Yet there's this multi multi billion dollar uh, you know industry around losing weight because most people need something to kind of anchor onto or process, which takes me back to the book again, which is why I offer those those four P's as a process that uh, helps you align yourself with whatever it is you want to do. You know, my daddy used to tell me, son, uh, success in life is seldom the result of natural gifts and talents. He was a school teacher. He had two master's degrees, yet he would still say it's not even about education or more than average intelligence. It's about a commitment to excellence. He'd say, William, if you do your best, your best, not Chris's best or not John's best, but your best, which is something we all can do, right? We can all do our best. He said, you'll do better than most because most people aren't going to give you their best. And that's the definition of excellence. Most people aren't committed to excellence. And the, that commitment is you doing your best, which is something that everybody can do, which is why excellence becomes a personal choice. You know, that is such a, that is such a powerful point. And I want to emphasize it. We talk a lot about being accountable and what it, what is being accountable. And account, accountability is a choice. You choose to be accountable or you choose not to be accountable. I mean, and right. I think we, we underestimate the power of making that choice and following through. But there's another word that comes to my mind as you're talking, which I think is really key here, and that's discipline. Yes. Uh, you know, I, look, I, I have no idea how many business books have been written. It's been it just lots, more than a person can read in a lifetime. And every one of those books has, you know, tricks and processes and things that you can teach and et cetera. But what I've found oftentimes, and, and, and I think about the weight loss that you're talking about is, is it's 
you said it, it's not rocket scientist, right? The tools themselves aren't actually hard. What's hard is the discipline. It's, it's sticking right. with it. It's making it happen. You know, you would not be here today if you didn't have some discipline that drove you to make something of yourself. And I, I watch people all the time, you know, um, I, I've seen people throughout my life, you know, point at, at highly successful entrepreneurs and they say, well, I could have done that. And, you know, I can't believe this guy made it there. And look at that guy. He didn't even graduate from high school. And, you know, how does he do that? Discipline. Yes. And, 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 and here's the other. If, if there's one trick, this is what I would put forward. And I'm a disciplined person, but I have the same challenges that everybody else has. What I have come to appreciate um, is that getting started is the toughest part in most cases. It's, That's it's the like, truth. You know, it, it, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to work out, but I, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And then once I start, it's okay. It's great. I don't want to sit down and write a chapter in the, in the book that I'm trying to write because I'd rather look at TV. There's a football game on the night. But if I can turn the TV off and sit down at the desk and start writing, once I start writing, it's okay. I'm into it, right? Yeah. You know? So if you could just get by that resistance of getting started. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership and execution the execution culture available now on amazon this is transformative experts with chris elias if you have a question or a comment about the show please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com now back to transformative experts Why should somebody even want to listen to you? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, more than anything else, uh, my journey has been, you know, I, from the time I was a first grader, my, my elementary school teacher told my parents I was going to be a great salesperson. My dad was a sales guy, so I always aspired to be a sales guy. And uh, it, I followed that path of being a sales guy, in quotes, of course. But as I, as I have grown into that experience, I have found that uh, sales uh, is just a title. It's more about who a salesperson is and what they do. And when I was in my first official sales job, if you will, was in New York City. 
and I sold soap, literally sold the soap to industrial laundries and commercial laundries in New York City. And the company that hired me hired me not because of my expertise as a technical guy in the you know in the field of soap, but because of my um, sales acumen, my ability to build relationships. And they dropped me in this highly competitive market in New York City and says, even though this is a consultative sale and even though people are going to ask you a lot of technical questions, we know that you can figure it out because you can get people to trust you and you can build great relationships. And they were correct. I was uh, quite able in, in my sales experience very early on to say, I have no idea what I'm selling, but I know how to solve problems. Tell me what the problem is and I will figure out how to get the solution and the answer in context always. I didn't just get the answer, but I got the answer in context. And, you know, I could give you examples down the line, but every one of my stops along the way, that was the key to my success. Wasn't really my sales skill, but it was more like my relationship building skills for solving problems. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, Maybe not so much today, but I remember when when I when I first left the corporate world and you know decided to learn a little something and I had to do a different type of sale. It was you know the the selling I was doing back at Big Boy. You had you know prospective franchisees coming to you. You didn't actually really have to go out and hunt them. It was more about when they came in. You know how did you how did you manage them? And it was all relationship too. But but I remember one of the first things I did is I signed up for a sales course and it was one of the Sandler training courses. And and this was back in the day when Sandler was still new and the concept was not why they should buy your good, but understanding their problem and how to solve it. And that was something you, you actually, did you learn that somewhere or is that something that just came natural to you? Um, it was actually something that came natural to me. And uh, I wish I could say, you know, when I, when I, you know, discovered it, but uh, that when I look at everything that I've done, it was always about just sitting in the space and tell me and saying to somebody, tell me what I need to know. And I've always done that. I've done that. You know, I can I can point to times in high school where I just sat with people and we would talk about life in general. And I would start to focus on um, understanding them from their perspective and what they were struggling with, what was working, what wasn't working. And then we would talk, uh, we would share ideas through that. And so that's really just been, I know, I've been hardwired that way from day one. And, you know, I sat in on a Sandler session probably about the time I had met you some 20 years ago. And the first time I sat in one of those sessions, I go, wow, <laughs> this is the perfect sales training program. All the other ones I always thought before that, you know, it was like the gate frame selling and, you know, all that stuff. And it was, it was all, I felt like it was super manipulative and it was disingenuous. And I loved the idea of, being, of sitting down and saying, okay, what do I need to know about your business? What do I need to know about your struggling, what you're struggling with and how can I help you find what you're looking for? And that's become my life passion. Um, once I got clear that that was always my life passion piece of it even comes into play as I think about behaviors and awareness of others. Um, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your current coaching because the, the stuff on listening that you do is really, it's, it's unique from, from my experience anyway. I mean, I don't know anybody else that's done it. I mean, we've all had people who tell us, you know, uh, you know, all the different skills of listening, if you will, the tactics, I think is a word that you utilize the tactics of, of listening, you know, Oh, you know, you know, use the affirmative nod, repeat what they said back to them, you know, those kind of things. I and mean, we've all heard that stuff, but, but you take a completely different approach and I, I, I want to explore that a little bit. So, uh, I don't want to give, give away too much, but share, share that approach, uh, with our 
our listeners and let's let's talk about what they can what they can maybe put into play right after listening to this show. Okay, um, because there, you know every every consultant has to have a brand. I did I did label the listening so we could understand what it is, but um, uh, I call it selfless listening. And to help you understand selfless listening as opposed to, you know, other things, selfless listening, the exact opposite, the polar exact opposite of selfless listening is selfish telling. And so let's start there with selfish telling. Selfish telling is just that it's about me telling you what you need to know. And so I look at the world from my point of view with my opinions, my experience, my values, my background, and I tell you how I see the world. And when I listen to you in that time, if I'm, if I'm in that selfish telling mode, I'm listening to what you say and filtering it through my values, my beliefs, my goals, my expectations. Therefore, I'm not hearing what you're saying. I'm actually judging, criticizing, or critiquing what you're saying. If we go into a selfless listening mode, what I do to the best of my ability is wipe the slate clean. And I wipe the slate clean saying, and especially I'm looking at you on the Zoom call, Chris, is that I'm looking at you says, what does Chris see? What does Chris experience? What does Chris believe? Why does he see, believe, and experience of that? How does that influence his decision-making? Um, Brene Brown call, calls it curiosity. I, I say to myself, it's not what I know. It's let me find out what I don't know. It's not what I believe. It's find out what, what other people's truths are. Because when I do that, I am allowing myself the space to freely learn from them without any impediments. The only impediment is I have to release of myself. That's why it's called selfless. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we focus on is, is sitting in the space and saying, Chris, tell me what I need to know. And building the trust of creating a safe, that safe place for them to share because people will say, okay, what are you up to? Because we're used to being judged and criticized. We're used to being told we are wrong. And um, so the idea being, and this is definitely what I learned with my son, my son coming home high doesn't make him wrong. It means that he's in pain. Do I greet him in pain with my judgment and criticism, or I do create a place for him to say, even though I'm in pain, I can experience my dad's love. So same thing, but in the business environment, if I'm working with an employee who's struggling to trust me because they feel like I'm judging and criticizing and condemning them, they're not going to tell me what's going on in their life. They're not going to share with me the perspective of their experience in the office. They're going to be reluctant. But if I could learn to create a space where I say, you know, I'm concerned, I'm committed, what do I need to know? And then you sit in that space and listen until they're done talking. So, you know, what I'm hearing is, is that this is a, this is the problem is, is that this is a programmed behavior in some regards. I mean, I don't know when we start learning it, but this concept of selfish telling, I, I, lo- I love how you put that. Um, and being on the other side of that, you know, the, the, the behavior of accepting and expecting to be talked to that way, that's a program behavior. When does that all start? Does it probably starts at a very young age? Well, it does start, you know, think about it, even the, even the best appearance, um, we, you know, we, people, we've learned this in sales. Nobody likes to hear no. Why is that? Because our parents will say yes and no. They'll have right and wrong. They'll have good and bad. We go to school. We have the same thing. The teacher has the right answer. So when we come up with an answer and if it's not the right answer, what is it? It's wrong. And so we learn that everything in life has some subjectivity to it. And we're just, we expect that subjectivity. And what happens is, is that it denies us the freedom to explore unless we rebel it unintentionally. Cause I don't sound saying this is incorrect, but it's just an un- unintentional byproduct of 
the the teaching culture that we have is that we think the uh, there's rules. There's the way the game has to be played, and whoever's in charge of the game, those are the rules, and we have to operate inside of it. And it it does create um, some limitations and some fear and resistance and all that other stuff that gets in the way of us freely expressing ourselves. So being a program behavior, that means we've got habits around it. And the longer standing a habit is, the harder to break. How, how do you begin breaking that cycle? How do, how, do you, how do you get somebody aware that they're even doing it? Um, which one, the, 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 the teller or the listener? <laughs> both, really. I mean, let's, let's tackle them both because I, I, because I think you have to work on, I would think you, every person has to work on both sides of this to some degree. Uh, yes, it does. And I guess the, if I, the reason I ask the question is kind of a smart aleck you ask, but the, the truth is from a leadership point of view, the leader has to go first. The reason the leader has to go first, and you talked about this, was being um, being naked, you know, being authentic, being vulnerable, being transparent. Okay, those are things that say, look, you know, um, the, the, a lot of times when I'm coaching uh, my clients, especially from a leadership point of view, a leader, we all say leader has certain behaviors. There's certain things, you know, styles and behaviors. When we do that, what we're doing is to say, for me to be the leader I need to be, and what we do is we create a coat, a jacket, a uniform that we put on in order to be the leader. And instead, what a leader really needs to be is a leader needs to be who they are. And so I need to be, I need to be, I need to trust that my personality, how I was, how I was wired and my goals and my values and my aspirations for who I am is who I am. So the first step in being a great leader to create a place for people to you know, be willing to share their story is you need to be authentic with them, that they realize that you're trusting them mm-hmm. with the authentic you. So I'm going first. I'm being naked in front of you using your thing earlier. The guy, when the person's sitting across, said, holy crap, you know, Dave's, I can tell Dave's being honest with me. He's being transparent. He's being vulnerable. He's, there's no, there's no hidden agenda here. With that, I'm creating that space then for them saying, please let me, please trust me with, please, excuse me, please trust you with me. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I understand it. So, um, you know, it, and I guess the part that I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking through right now, uh, maybe struggling a touch is I'm, I'm looking for that, that moment, that trigger. So what would be, you know, you know, uh, for, for any leader out there that's in this position that might be, um, you know, have, have a habit of selfish telling, maybe even with the best of intent. I, I, I think people typically have good intent, but they're unaware of how the behavior is um, affecting others around them. Susan Scott, for instance, in, in her book, Fierce Conversations, once said one of the principles is be aware of your emotional wake. And yet a lot of people aren't really aware of that. You know, and, and we could probably say behavioral wake to some degree as, as well, that, that our wake can mess things up. And so if, if, if you've got a leader who, let's say, has never heard of any of this stuff, you know, he's learned some of the tactics of active listening, but, you know, maybe it's not... not uh, you know, positively helping him out, what would be, what would be the trigger? What would be the, the thing that, that, that somebody should recognize and say, you know what, I, I have to pause. I, I should rethink my approach here. I, maybe, I, maybe I'm the problem. That's a great question. And the, the, the simple answer is um, it's a, it's a, it's a, t- it's a barometer. It's a test. Just like you said, when I'm getting ready to lean in and say something, um, the barometer that the test is, is this for me? Is it for them? Is this for me or is it about them? Because if I want to tell you something, I go, yeah, I want to, I really need to tell Chris, I go, okay, what's my motivation? Is this something that I feel like he needs to know? 
or is it something that um, that uh, I don't understand? There's something that I don't know that I need to understand first before I tell him what I see. And so that's the idea. It's the the question is, what don't I know before I tell? And if I'm leaning in and just telling him because I want to get it over, I just want to tell him, just you know, he needs to know. That's being selfish. If I go and say I'm seeing this behavior that I'm not sure about, or he keeps making mistakes at work, or there's a there's something going on, it's a it's like what do I need to know that I don't know already, rather than what do I need to tell him to fix it? Got it. Got it. But again, it does require a level of self awareness. I mean, we we all know those leaders that. Um, well, I don't know if I'd use the word leader sometimes with some of the people I'm thinking about, but we know those people in leadership positions um, that really, you know what, they're going to be in tell mode that they're, they're, you know, and that's just who they are. That's their personality. And they really couldn't give a crap. Sorry about it, but they really couldn't give a crap about what other people think or feel or whatever. And this is just how they're going to run their company. Um, I met one of those actually recently and uh, somebody I decided not to, to, you know, provide our services to because really he just wanted me to get up there and validate everything he was telling everybody to do. And it was too big of a company to not trust your leadership team. And, and the guy could not understand why he was having so much turnover at his leadership <clears throat> level. And, you know, I, and when I talked to him about it, about, you know, he could be part of the problem. That was kind of the end of our conversation, right? I mean, some people just don't want to be aware. Have you experienced that? Yeah, um, definitely. And again, it, it, it just goes back to receptivity. Um, yeah, and you have this experience. I have this experience as a consultant. Some people aren't going to get it. Some people will get it when they're ready. It's just like recovery. Um, so I, I accept that my message doesn't resonate with everybody. But but the, the challenge is, is that uh, when I sit in the space with somebody, it just goes back to the it's problem solving. And I, I uh, again, you know, I don't want it to sound like, you know, there's a there's a process, but there are some things that I've just recognized as a pattern in my conversations with people. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, Please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts.
like anybody else, you've worked hard to get to where you are today. And um, I'd love to know a little bit about that. You know, share something with our audience on how, how somebody becomes an expert in entrepreneurship. Well, I think when you become an expert in something, you have to be that person. So, uh, you know, for one way or another, by default almost, I was channeled into entrepreneurship because of my uh, genetic composite and who my DNA is. I mean, when I was when I was young, I was never fitting in anywhere. I was always the disruptor in the classroom, getting bored, you know, throwing seventh grade. I saw this thing, my report cards, you know, hitting a teacher with spitballs because I was bored. Uh, I mean, I was always in trouble, always in detention, uh, multiple schools because I was bored. And I understood that people weren't getting to the point what they did. And this dissatisfaction in the system for me. All follow me throughout. I studied anarchism in uh, in college, and then I took a freighter to China when I graduated. Became a newspaper reporter. Was recruited re, uh, recruited by our government to do certain things, and uh, I had a very bizarre upbringing. And when I came back to the United States, I was 25 years old. I was a bit of a madman, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't get a job. And every job I did, I got fired from. And then I found a couple people that harnessed my energy. And I realized I wasn't fit for big organizations. I needed to be in a place where there was free thinking around aggression, uh, sales. And I turned into a, a very, very good salespeople. And the people were smart enough to harness my energy and put me in the field of battle for small business. And, uh, and I went out there and I really developed into a, you know, a kick-ass salesperson. And I, I did great in my 20s, my later 20s after my defunct start. Uh, but it, it was hard. So I always remember my years when I was uh, what Winston Churchill called his wilderness years. Yeah, yeah. When, uh, or his, his black dog where, uh, you know, he was depressed. He didn't understand why he didn't fit in and he was wandering from thing to thing. And for me, I, I had the same thing. And I think a lot of people that become entrepreneurs suffer through this same malady. We don't follow the straight path. And if we're on a certain job trajectory, we're very restless inside and, and we're not satisfied. So for me, entrepreneurship is you know baked into your DNA and it's a matter of bringing it out in a healthy fashion to serve the businesses that you are and to uh, try to get to the goals where you want to go. What was your first entrepreneurial venture? Oh, I was, you know, it, it was sort of a mainstream game. I was uh, first a salesperson. I was a commercial real estate broker, did well there. I did fine. Then I was recruited by uh, some pretty tough guys to uh, become the president of a, uh, a real estate development company that operated on the fringes. Uh, we, we were sort of the black sheep of the, the Boston uh, uh, real estate world because we were all outsiders and we were scrappers. And so I used to sign hazardous waste. We'd go to a building and my role when I was in my thirties, there would be the, the, the place would be reeking of hazardous waste and be bubbling like out of the ground, like a bad movie. And I would sign um, personally on the line to, to take the full brunt of it. And the lawyers, I remember the lawyers and everyone would be going, Oh my God, this guy's nuts. But I kept doing it. We it was fine. And I made my first millions by signing on those hazardous waste and throwing myself on the grenade for the team. The older guys were like, okay, this guy's got game and he'll do it. He's a talker and he's, he's got cojones and let's, let's, let's harness him up for some other things. And then, you know, we would buy pools of uh, banknotes, 
that uh, we, there would be a yacht in Cyprus. We buy the banknote for $100,000, so it's worth a million. We'd have to find out who it was that had it, and then we would track them down with detectives, and then we would take possession of the... Oh, I was in my 20s. I was in my glory, and then in my 30s. And so I moved along there, but then I got into more traditional businesses where... Again, my, those guys that I was working with were not very nice to me. Mm-hmm. And the, they were supposed to give me a check for 300000 at dinner. And I had a new family and I was so happy. And the check was for 60000 And they looked at me and I looked at them and they said, you didn't read the small print. I almost killed them. I didn't. I left the table. I cashed the check and I quit. And I took the 60000 and I borrowed my sister's wedding deposit money. And I went out and I bought a defunct pet food company. Mm. And I took this company out of receivership. It was like, it was a sad little place. And, and I just, by heroic efforts on my part and the people that we work with, I mean, my back was against the wall. I signed my new house up personally on the mortgage. You know, we built it up uh, as a group and, uh, you know, from a million to 10 million in sales. And then I sold it. And from there, I was I sort of had my jump badge into entrepreneurship. Yeah. And from there, the, the whole playing field opened up for me. You know, you're going to sit there and people admire the people that fail because the success stories, everyone just rolls in the dough and the money and, you know, the glamour of it. But for the people that have been caught in the barbed wire and the people that have been chewed up by the game for the, to, to saddle up again, they deserve our admiration and our respect. And they will be a much more seasoned veteran of entrepreneurship. And do you think so, you know, early failure actually is an early failure can be a powerful thing. I mean, I've seen some situations where I've had, um, you know, I've met young people who've who've won the, the, the investment lottery and they get millions of dollars for an idea and then it fails. And it's such a shock to their system. They don't even know which way to go. Yeah, but that's when, you you know, every successful entrepreneur should be surrounded by a series of veteran uh, sponsors, veteran advisors. You know, you don't need your tax guy telling you about your growth strategy and you don't need your lawyer telling you about HR. You know, you need f- four or five different advisors and these advisors stay in their lanes and you're the quarterback of your advisors. Yeah. You know, it's such, such good advice. And, um, and it's, it's one that, that I don't see taken you know, often enough with the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial companies we work with, you know, and we always try to get them out there. We become advisors, obviously we get more and they move forward, but I've met so many of them that you're right. Their advisor is their tax guy. You know, the couple of people they hire, but not necessarily the group of people that have taken them before. And I, I think that's the difference between some investment styles. I mean, I've found that the companies that have venture capitalists are as investors are the kind that are, um, they're just being driven by the bottom line and, and they're not getting good guidance per se. They just have investors. Whereas I've also seen, you know, what we call angel investors who've invested in, who are, who do become trusted advisors to the team and really help these guys out. Yeah, it's fun because I, I think about, you know, the, the, the concept of let's talk, let's talk about just being virtual for a few minutes. And, and, um, you know, our audience knows that we even do these, these programs virtually. I mean, I think about it, you know, in the old days where you had to be in the studio, I probably wouldn't have been able to have you as a guest, or you could have called in and, you know, maybe it would have sounded okay. Zoom, I think sounds better. We utilize as live Zoom feed, but, but, but it's really opened up the opportunity. I've had guests from overseas. We've, we've done a lot of things, but, but even in our work, um, almost all of my clients, 
you know, prior to the pandemic, when we would talk about, you know, allowing people to work from home with roles where they don't have to be. And I mean, obviously you can't have a machine operator work from home, right? But, but, you know, roles where they don't have to be in the office, we've talked about it, the savings in office space, the ability to hire people across country, you know, where you don't have to always have people, you know, in your state, you know, it was, it was getting harder and harder to hire and they resisted, they resisted, they resisted. Now, boom, all of a sudden they were forced to go remote. People had to be home. The pandemic restricted it. And they found, and, and I'm still finding there were a couple that are looking for ways to go back while others are saying, wow, you know what? We really can do this. We, why didn't we do this before? You know, we can save some money. We don't need as much office space. This, this works better. You know what? We're in California. We don't have to pay all those taxes. We can have, a, we can have people in North Dakota that work for us now. You know, it's, um, it's, it is a new world. It is in the world. And, you know, there's going to be a, a really strong undercurrent going back and forth as the, vi- the vaccines uh, kick in and the ownership who can't say anything. The owners, especially the owners over age 45, they're used to having everyone underfoot at the space. They're spending 30, 40, 50,000 a month on rent and nobody's in the space. And they know people at home are doing yoga at lunch instead of sitting in the conference room going through their numbers with their boss. There's a, you know, the productive people have been very productive at home, and even more so. But for the entry level people or the people, the, the young people starting up who have not been harnessed to machines before, they're, they're sort of been, uh, they're, they don't, they're not being indoctrinated correctly the way that the business ownership wants them. of the people working at home now are saying uh, they'll switch companies if they they can't continue to work at home. And 31% said they'll absolutely quit. So you have the owners who want them to come back after the PPP and uh, the government bailout ends. And uh, they want back what it was. They can't get everyone back. And for the people that want to continue living at home with their stretchy pants on, that's not going to happen either. Maybe for certain segments like uh, programmers, everyone else that uh, certain salespeople that can be quantitatively valued. But for a lot of people whose jobs are cultural or more qualitative than quantitative, these people have to be careful that they just don't get whacked someday in the future when after June, the second quarter, second half of this year, business is going to be back, you know, living on their own without government. And what are they going to do? They're going to look at the least productive people and they're going to fire them. And what are the people that are going to get fired? Those are going to be the ones that are out of sight, out of mind at home. I was just with a 40 year old guy who has a great business. He's waiting for us all some employees to come back. And he's, we're sitting there looking around this vacant uh, building and they're not coming back, but he's going to force them back or he's going to fire them slowly one at a time. And he has to be careful. But uh, he's like, I want my people back at work. He goes, maybe half time, a third in, a third flex, and a, a third can work at home. I can live with this, but I'm not going to live with 60, 70 percent of people at home, uh, you know, and without me being able to supervise them. So the. the the owners have to be careful and the people who are so comfortable working at home have to be very careful that uh, and they should not be shocked if they're mailing it in from home and not working hard. They're, they're going to be the first ones to get cut. Well, and so, you know, there are 
there are ways of measuring productivity now. I mean, what what has also happened with the pandemic is there are there are monitoring systems that can tell when somebody's on their computer what they're doing. I mean, some of some of the, the companies that have people working at home are are doing that. There's also the concept of paper performance. So you start shifting from the concept of I'm paying you for a certain number of hours to here are the metrics and you have to hit these metrics every single week. Um, you know, Amazon's done that for years and all of that, but still. I think the bigger issue and, and something that, that you've mentioned to me in the past is that as, as economies ebb and flow, I mean, the economy always has, has motion to it as well. And in downtimes, when companies have to downsize, it's going to be out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it, it, will, be, it will be those people that they're not aware of. And, and they might even be sometimes more, more productive than the people that are in their office, but because they're not seeing them, they're the easiest ones to... Right. There's no emotional bond. There's yeah. no typing. And so for those people, Chris, when you sit back and they're like, okay, so they, someone lose their job. Now you're interviewing on zoom. Uh, and so now you get hired and you have no attachment to the new people at work. And so now you're just a number. You're just some remote being out there in the workplace. You'll be the first one to get cut again. So they're, they're forecasting the, the people that get cut. Well, their careers are going to be jump, jump, jump. Uh, and there'll be plug and play for people. And it, it, it could be a, a very bad cycle or merry-go-round to get on. So, you know, we like to caution people that uh, are snug at home, working, working, that maybe once a week you should go to the office if it's appropriate. Get some face time with everyone. You know, be proactive and just don't hide from your bosses or your fellow workers. Be proactive with everyone. Go out uh, as things loosen up, uh, meet somebody for lunch or go for a walk. Do something. But face-to-face time is not gone. And uh, the, the people that are doing the FaceTime thing are the ones, uh, if, if it's a toss-up, who's going to get canned? Well, there you have it. Some of the best leadership advice available. You know what? You have the power to be a great leader and a successful boss. Transformative experts can help bring that potential out of you. And today's advice is just the start. Tune in next week for another great episode and be sure to visit transformativeexperts.com for more. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.